Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr. Tom Thorpe. The WFA is dedicated to furthering interests in the First World War and has over 60 branches worldwide. It is the UK's largest Great War History Society. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 14th of May 2018 and this is episode number 63. In this edition, Sir Hugh Strawn, patron of the WFA, delivers a lecture on starvation and economic warfare during the Great War. This lecture was recorded at the WFA's AGM in London last month. Have I got that working? Is that working? Great. Um, thank you, Peter. Uh, I read these notes in the bus from Brixton to here uh, this morning. Uh, fortunately, I think the subject's reasonably in my mind, but you'll be the best judge of that. Um, before I get on to this, I should unashamedly do a plug for the St. Andrew's Conference on the Home Front, those of you who don't know it. Uh, this is part of the National Commemoration supported by the Department of Culture, Media and Sport, and also by the Scottish Government, uh, a triumph of diplomacy, I have to say, to get them both to contribute. Uh, and it will it's a sequence of events beginning on Monday the 18th of June and running through to the 23rd of June, with the conference itself from the 20th to the 22nd of June. And if you simply Google British Home Front uh, 1914-1918, it will come up. Um, so please think about St Andrews in the summer, bring your golf clubs, all that sort of stuff. Right, let me get to what I'm meant to be talking about um, and perhaps take you back to 2016 when um, the Royal Navy was busy telling us, of course, that Chuck Norman was the battle that had won the war. Um, and the argument which they constructed out of that was because the Navy uh, did not lose the Battle of Chuck uh, any more than it won it, it at least won it strategically. I mean, there's nothing wrong with this argument because they still essentially maintain maritime dominance uh, on the world's oceans, if not on the North Sea. Um, and the German Heisen fleet did not come out again. And because of that, the blockade could be sustained. Um, it's not really true. Um, it's a story that has a long pedigree. Uh, by 1917-18, the blockade is primarily being driven from the United States, uh, not being driven uh, by the closure of the sea so much. Uh, and I'll explain that in due course. But the argument that this is a war that is essentially one at sea, uh, which I shall come back to uh, at the end, is one that has a pedigree that goes back to Little Hearts, uh, history of the First World War, not the real war where he didn't enter this. I must get this somewhere into my pocket. I haven't silenced it by doing that, have I? No. Um, is an argument that goes back to... to, to uh, his history of the First World War. The real war, he didn't say this, but the conclusion to the revised version of history of the World War says, you know, the further we get away from this war, the more clear it becomes uh, that the war was won at sea and it's effectively the consequence of the blockade. Uh, and that's an argument which, of course, was then challenged, uh, not least by John Terrain, uh, but also by Paul Kennedy, a naval historian himself in the rise and fall of uh, British naval mastery, who, who both said, you know, the wearing out in this war, the economic exhaustion caused by this war, is caused at the fighting fronts. Um, it's not what happens uh, at home. So um, it's this is an area of controversy. Um, it's an area where I think um, other fresh things to be said, possibly not. Uh, that's for you to judge. But where I think we need to get some grasp of what is going on, uh, not least because. Uh, it's one that will go round and round. What is the balance here, if you like, between military operations, naval operations, between fighting at the front um, and economic effect? The point at which to begin is that for most in Britain before 1914, Britain's contribution to this war would be maritime and naval. The navy, after all, was the principal service, uh, in Britain. Um, it was the service uh, which people, pu the public identified with, 
uh, in a way, of course, that very often it does not now. Um, and it was the reason, of course, Britain, that France and Russia both wanted Britain in this war. Uh, Samsonov, the, the Russian foreign minister, said to Sir George Buchanan, um, the, the British ambassador in St. Petersburg, uh, that having Britain in the war would undoubtedly shorten it because of the effects of economic pressure brought by the Royal Navy. Um, in France, uh, Edouard de Castelnau, a soldier after all, the deputy chief of the general staff, said exactly the same thing to Lord Bertie, uh, the <coughs> British ambassador in Paris. And during the July crisis, uh, Combon, the, uh, the French ambassador in Britain, when he was putting pressure on Sir Edward Grey for Britain to take part in this war, was stressing the Anglo-French naval agreement, uh, the way in which France was dependent on the Royal Navy. Uh, I forget who it was, but I think it was Poincaré who said, we need just one British soldier to come to France, and he needs to be killed, that's all, uh, because by that we will have Britain's commitment. But it isn't the asset that we're looking for. The asset we're looking for is the Navy. And when Sir Edward Grey got up and spoke to Parliament on the 3rd of August, uh, 1914. You didn't then, any more than now, have to get parliamentary approval to go to war. Uh, just remind the House of Commons, it seems to forget this. But you do perhaps have to account for your actions, which is what Sir Edward Grey was doing to Parliament. When he went to sit up before Parliament and explain what he was doing, he said, whether we enter this war or whether we don't, uh, we will be affected because we are a great global maritime trading nation. Um, and this will be essentially a naval war. He thought at that juncture the British Expeditionary Force would be guarding the colonies. Uh, the Committee of Imperial Defence Subcommittee took a different decision two days later. Um, now, at that time, the prevailing belief was that the agrarian peasant economies of the more backward parts of Europe would actually prove uh, more. Uh, resilient in the event of protracted conflict. Uh, Russia felt that by being still overwhelmingly a peasant society, it would last longer in a war than would a modern industrialized society like Britain or for that matter Germany. Um, and they pointed, those, these observers, to the experience of the First Balkan War. Uh, the First Balkan War had shown the peasant families were able to adapt to the economic <coughs> pressure uh, because the, the man of the family might go to war, but the wife, granddad, the children would all rally round and keep a peasant society going. Um, and that was what gave a degree of confidence that actually uh, these rural societies could cope. It didn't stop, of course, the Austro-Hungarian army from delaying mobilization in part to help bring the harvest in, and it didn't mean troops didn't have to be released from the front during the course of the war in order to go and get the harvest in. Uh, but the point remained that, for example, France proved remarkably resilient uh, in rural terms, precisely because of the workings of the peasant society that could underpin how the crops were brought in and managed. The concern in Britain about economic war was rather different um, those of you who remember your British political history, which no university now teaches, uh, will know that rather than divide over Brexit in 1846, the Conservative Party divided over the Corn Laws, um, as a result of which uh, it introduced a pattern of free trade, which over the course of the 19th century, and particularly after the 1870s agricultural depression, made Britain heavily dependent on imported grain, uh, especially, but not only, from North America, uh, just in time uh, economics essentially, uh, and a realisation that within a matter of weeks without effective imports Britain would starve. Um, an officer, Highland officer, um, called Stuart, oh gosh what's his surname, Murray, uh, began to agitate at the IOSI in about 1900 to say you know, if we do enter a war and we are blockaded, Britain will be starved out very quickly. We should be worried about this, because the working classes will then rise in revolution. And he got sufficient concern within Parliament that in 1903, a Royal Commission was established on trade in time of uh, conflict, in time of war, 
uh, which reported in 1905. And what the Royal Commission actually said was, don't panic everybody, the Navy can protect British trade in time of war, and all we need to do in time of war, which is indeed what Britain did in 1914, is have a system of in shipping insurance, maritime insurance, which Lloyds will provide, which indeed it did, uh, which will keep British merchant tonnage at sea. British merchant fleet represents just under 50% of the world's total world holdings of merchant tonnage in 1914. So a very significant capability. And in fact, when you come to the war, when you come to the wage of the blockade and the economic war, it's worth reflecting that even in the crisis of 1917-18 with the U-boat campaign, Britain is never in serious trouble in terms of its own food supplies, despite that dependence on imported grain. And that is largely because the arguments about peasant economies being more resilient were actually in a long war wrong. A peasant economy had no slack in the system, particularly in a pre-industrial peasant economy where machinery could not take the place of the absent manpower. Whereas Britain, because it had put so much of its potential arable land to grazing, could actually put it under the plough. So Britain's production of corn, wheat particularly, in the second half of, 19, of the war means that Britain is never in danger of running out of food. Uh, it's very good for morale. You talk about rationing, and there's a sense of equality, and I'll come to that point about sense of equality if I don't talk for too long, in British society as a consequence of that. Uh, but uh, the situation is, broadly speaking, okay. What the Royal Commission does expose is that the threat is less bad than was feared for Britain, but there might be an opportunity, if there was war with Germany, in using economic war against them. Because Germany was just reaching that tipping point where it was no longer agriculturally self-sufficient. For a long time, Britain had been the only society, who, most of whose population lived in cities and away from the countryside. Germany was just turning the corner on. Uh, and in the decade before the First World War, uh, Germany's awareness of that uh, meant that it shifted uh, the balance of its production between wheat and barley towards more wheat. It was importing about 20% of its wheat. It shifted more to wheat, recognised the need to be able to produce more bread for the population if there were a war, but at the same time imported more barley, and that barley uh, was used for meat, uh, and as a result, it remained just as import-dependent in terms of grains overall uh, as it had done uh, in, let's say, 1904-1905. So here is an opportunity uh, to use sea power in a European war. It's an opportunity which Julian Corbett, the author of Some Principles of Maritime Strategy, produced, uh, argued in 1911 that economic uh, war would be more important to the Navy than the idea of battle, uh, that fixation with Trafalgar uh, or rerun of Trafalgar, which many of the Royal Navy uh, harboured, uh, was one that he challenged in that book. Spencer Wilkinson, the then professor of military history at Oxford, reviewed some principles of maritime strategy in the Daily Telegraph um, and said it was a Navy General, sorry, not the Telegraph, the Morning Post, um, and he said this book should not be put in the hands of any junior naval officer. Uh, it should be banned uh, because essentially it did argue against big fleets and against primacy of naval action in favour of the use of economic warfare uh, in the event of a major continental war. The Naval uh, Intelligence Division took up the interest and there was an interaction between Corbett lecturing at the, at, at the Naval War Force and successive directors of naval intelligence, and they begin to think through the possibility of waging economic war, of creating the ships to do it through bringing through bringing up taking uh, merchantmen into the Royal Naval Service, arming them as auxiliary cruisers, um, and developing plans it, for the event of continental warfare. So what are they actually developing plans to do? What would an economic war look like? Previous blockades, uh, and the immediately past ones to 
which they referred were especially the blockade of the Confederacy in the American Civil War, um, the blockade uh, of Japan in the Russo-Japanese War, uh, the blockade of Russia in the Crimean War. Previous wars ha had used blockades as a means of depriving the, the uh, power being blockaded of income. The states did not have income taxes, uh, except Britain in 1914, uh, an effective system of income tax. Their principal source of revenue were customs and excise. So trade is how you get your government funding. Uh, in the German Reich in 1914, uh, local government has the power to exercise taxes on, on income. The state in 1870, because 1871 at the point of unification, because it was then the biggest source of income for them, monopolized customs and excise. And so the presumption within a blockade, certainly of Russia in 1854, uh, or of um, the Confederacy during the Civil War, is that you're depriving the blockaded power of that money. Uh, it's money you're attacking, not goods. Uh, that is not going to apply in this war, uh, partly because the sources of national wealth are so varied, uh, and partly because now there is an assumption that there are other ways of having an effect. And I see three themes coming through in this plan. But these themes, three themes are much clearer in the eyes of the historian than they are uh, or were at the time. The first is the idea that if you blockaded a country, what you would do is create a financial crisis. You would create a run on the currency, you'd have panic on the stock exchanges, and you would have financial collapse. If any of you read a big fat book by Nicholas Lambert called Planning Armageddon, uh, which is about British planning for the British waging of economic war in the First World War, this is what he describes as Britain's war plan in 1940. It's rubbish, um, but what is true is, is that there is a strand of thought that goes along those lines, that war will cause uh, financial and economic collapse in that sense, and that the consequence will be disorder. The second thought, and the one that is sort of more familiar to us, is that what you should do is cut off imports, particularly of vital raw materials for the production of munitions, genuine contraband. You should stop Germany getting the wherewithal to produce shells, guns, and so on. And, of course, the possibility that you will cut off food supply. The notion that starvation is part of this is there in pre-1914 thinking. Jackie Fisher certainly talks about it and so do others. Uh, and then there is the third, third idea, which is that actually economic war is not to do either of those things, but is designed to force the enemy fleet out so that you do have a fleet action. So actually there isn't necessarily an incompatibility an alternative between economic warfare and a naval battle, but one could trigger the other. The blockade would trigger the high seas fleet to come out. Up to 1909, a great deal of exchange is happening on this, and then there is a bit of a crisis in 1909 because, and he's already been mentioned today, uh, Lord Charles Beresford and Jackie Fisher have this argument that, of course, causes a fair amount of mayhem. I think it's sometimes exaggerated, but not exaggerated in this case, between uh, or within the higher reaches of the Navy uh, and of the Admiralty. The, 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 the issue that actually forces the King to encourage Fisher to think about uh, retirement. Um, the Naval Intelligence Division is particularly caught up in that faction uh, and loses its direction and much of its authority. And when in August 1911, the Committee of Imperial Defence meet at the height of the Aguilera crisis, the second Moroccan crisis, to review the war plans. Uh, the moment when Henry Wilson says, you know, we've got six divisions there, they're ready to go, and they, they've captured 210 from Victoria, and they'll arrive at uh, various ports of the half, you know, by a set time afterwards, which is always seen as the moment when the BEF and the army take control of, of British war plans. What is actually concerning the Committee of Imperial Defence is the absence of a coherent naval um, it's the inability of the then First Sea Lord Wilson, other Wilson, uh, other Wilson, being able to say uh, exactly what the Navy will do. Uh, and the decision then, of course, is to bring Churchill in as First Sea Lord, uh, 
seemingly totally bonkers decision given some of his subsequent actions, and the, uh, and the, with the task of creating a proper naval staff to thrash this out from 1912 on. In the run-up to the war, a number of gay, uh, naysayers argue that actually blockade's not going to work anyway. What's the point of this being a central war plan? And that depends um, on a number of things. The first um, is uh, that Germany is going to be able to import very effectively through the so-called border neutrals. That um, actually you can't very easily blockade Germany because it does most of its trade through Holland uh, and especially through Rotterdam. Roughly 50% of its trade enters Germany along the Rhine through that route. Uh, and you can also, of course, because the Royal Navy is not going to be able to challenge German control of the Baltic, they'll be able to import via Scandinavia through Norway, Sweden, and Denmark. Uh, quite apart, of course, what happens possibly in relation to Switzerland. But it's those northern countries that this argument particularly uh, revolves around. And given the fact that the largest economy of the world at the time, the United States, is likely to be, and of course is neutral up until 1917, it's going to be extraordinarily hard to disrupt neutral traffic. In 1909, uh, 1908 actually, the end of it, 1908 and through into 1909, London decided to convene uh, 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 the representatives of the major powers following on the first and second Hague conferences to think about how to apply laws of war at sea. And in particular, of course, to address this issue of definitions of neutrality, of how you could deal with the business of goods that were shipped into a neutral country and then re-exported to a belligerent country, and how you should define contraband and what contraband should be. And London is caught in a dilemma, because between 1856 and 1914, Britain engaged in one, only one international war, and that was the war against the Boer Republic. Otherwise, it had been neutral in every international war, despite doing an awful lot of fighting. And as a result, it had cashed in as the neutral cross trade. With half the world's tonnage, with London as, as the financial capital of the world, this war was good business for Britain. So what London really wanted was strengthened neutral rights. It wanted the capacity to trade. It wanted to allow neutrals to do exactly what it wouldn't want neutrals to do if Britain were a belligerent. And that's the dilemma in which it finds itself. The upshot is that the Declaration of London is passed by the House of Commons, essentially because they accept the argument that we need more regulation and that that will boost neutral rights, and then rejected by the House of Lords, who say, hang on, uh, this will be very hard to apply if we are a belligerent and it won't be in our interest. So London does not ratify the Declaration of London. There are other powers, of course, are very happy with the Declaration of London because it has the effect of diminishing, if Britain is a belligerent, the effectiveness of its sea power. So there are two issues that the Declaration of London had got hung up on. The first was this issue of so-called continuous voyage. If you send goods from New York to Rotterdam, from one neutral to another neutral, that's okay. If the goods are then taken off the ship that has brought them to Rotterdam, put on a barge and sent up the Rhine to Germany, then that means the goods are ultimately for Germany. And Britain wants to apply the principle of continuous voyage if it's at war. And the second is the issue of what is contraband. Absolute, they make, the Declaration of London makes a distinction between absolute contraband, conditional contraband, and free goods, like goods that have no hooks around them at all. Absolute contraband is obvious stuff like munitions. Conditional contraband are things that can be used for military purposes, might be of value to belligerents, and will be sort of defined on the day. Food comes in that group. Is food for German soldiers, or is it for consumption by German civilians? Should it be banned to all Germans, but allowed freely to travel to neutrals? Those are the sorts of issues that arise out of this. So, the state of the law and the state of what you can do and the state of planning are all up for grabs in August 1914. 
nothing has been firmly decided. And that is reflected in the slowness with which the blockade is applied. It was never going to be, for all Nicholas Lambert's argument, a weapon of quick effect because there is no plan for a quick effect. And those uh, French and Russians who thought the collapse of Germany under this sort of pressure would be instantaneous because there would be panic in the streets and commodities would run short and there would be a revolution within Germany uh, were also proved to be totally wrong. Uh, what happened immediately is that Britain said, because it was asked to clarify the position by the United States, Britain said, we will obey the principle of the Declaration of London, but we will not obey the letter of the law. In other words, we will apply continuous void, the principle of continuous void, this uh, particularly from the 1st of March 1915 onwards, and we will observe the distinction between absolute and conditional contraband, but food for Germany is absolute contraband. So that was applied straight away too. France said, we don't know, France actually was in favour of the Declaration of London, so you should be doing it because it's better to have something that clarifies these issues as a departure point rather than not to ratify it and leave things unresolved. The last major statement about maritime law in time of war having been delivered in 1856 by uh, the Declaration of Paris, it's, it's better to have something that, is a, that we can at least work with. Um, and in any case, they said, you don't need to worry about this because actually you're not going to be applying a blockade anyway. The immediate challenge legally is that what the Declaration of Paris had said was that for a blockade to be effective, to be legal, I beg your pardon, it has to be effective. In other words, it has to be close enough to the coast to prevent troop, uh, ships from getting in and out. Now, in the conditions of 1914, the Royal Navy had no interest in getting close to the German coast. Uh, there would be mines there, there would be submarines, there would be shore batteries, destroyers, torpedo boats could come out. And the danger for the Navy was that the ground fleet would suffer a steady erosion of vessels uh, if they stayed in close. Um, and from roughly 1911 onwards, so the argument goes backwards and forwards, the conclusion is that this blockade will be a distant blockade and that you will use essentially the landmass of the British Isles to do half the blockading or two-thirds of the blockading for you and that you will close off the channel through barrage of Dover, from Dover to the French, and you will close off uh, the area from Orkney to Norway uh, by having uh, patrols there. So that you are able to turn the North Sea into a form of no man's land, uh, but you can control the exit and entry of ships into the North Sea from the world's oceans. And the Germans can't get at you that easily compared with your coming close to the German coast. So that's the decision. But this is not in legal terms, as understood by the Declaration of Paris, a blockade. So the French said, we should just call it economic war and not even beg the question of whether we've got a blockade here. Given the fact that the planning, as well as the legal status, of course, uh, is uncertain and ambiguous, as I said, it takes time to put it in place. Uh, and in many ways, the most obvious part is the part I've been talking about. What does the Navy do? And that should have been clear, but nothing had been done to prepare the armoured cruisers for this role. Uh, there, have, there have been preliminary discussions about insurance and about bringing ships from uh, merchant, merchant companies, uh, from shipping companies, but no guns have been put on ships. The ships themselves haven't been identified. Initially, there are only eight out-of-date cruisers uh, to do the to make up the 10th cruiser squadron, which is the squadron that does the gap from Orkney to Norway. Um, they didn't have much pace. These are the equivalents of a live bait squadron, which were torpedoed very early in the war, the Abigail, Cressy, and Sir Hogue. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, the, the, and it's not until December that you have a reasonable squadron of approaching, I mean, it's 23, 24 ships, of reasonable speed, sea keeping capability, these are obviously tough seas to be, to be serving in, that actually can uh, 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 present a reasonable barrier in the north. The cruiser squadron then gets frustrated 
they spent a lot of time sending neutral tonnage into uh, ports, in the north of Scotland, to have them checked in terms of you know, where, where are they actually bound for, uh, what is the nature of the cargo, um, should these be declared prize, or can they be, be free to, to continue sailing to neutral ports, and find that most of these ships are actually being allowed to proceed. And indeed, between 1914 and 1915, uh, the import trade to the border neutral soared. It go Norway, it goes from by value from three million pounds worth of import trade to forty-eight million pounds worth. So what's happening, self-evidently, is Norwegians are cashing in on the opportunities provided by German needs, and Germany is prepared to pay. And the exports to Germany from the border neutrals go up in proportion as well. So it's not just a naval presence you need. You also need commercial intelligence. And nobody, of course, has said about doing anything in that regard before 1914. You need to find out which companies in New York, for example, normally ship goods to Germany, are in the German trade, and how, what routes do they normally use? Which companies in the border neutrals normally trade with Germany? Uh, what sort of goods uh, are in particular being focused on? There are the obvious ones that may have military applications, but there are others that don't necessarily have military applications, etc., etc. So you've got to build up an intelligence base. You know, card index, new invention. Um, this is what people are spending, as in uh, Wing 40's uh, naval or military intelligence. Card indexes are the basis of this. Compiling this information, it takes time. And the third aspect is diplomacy. Because you're not addressing an enemy power, you're having actually to do your negotiation with neutral powers, including, of course, the United States. Sir Edward Gray famously said that my aim is to get the maximum blockade with the minimum of disruption to Anglo-American relations. And here, although there is tremendous tension between the, the Admiralty and the Navy on the one hand, Jellicoe complains the whole time about the feebleness of the foreign tension between the Admiralty and the Navy and the Foreign Office, and tension with their, with, between them and the Board of Trade, three partners to this, you need to recognise that all of them are effectively serving the purposes of the war in very different ways, something the Admiralty failed very often to recognise because of their own desire to engage the enemy. Britain is the arsenal and financier of an alliance. It's trading, own trading is central to winning this war. So it can't just cut off all trade with neutrals, because by doing that, it will harm itself as well as harming Germany. It needs to sustain trade. And the trade is not just in the United States. Britain, too, wants Danish butter and Dutch bacon, just like the Germans do. So it needs to have a trading relationship with those countries as well. So the Board of Trade is anxious to maintain trade because this is an arm in the war. It's an arm of the war effort. And the Foreign Office, of course, wants a good relationship with the United States because where increasingly is Britain placing its overseas orders and how is it funding them? It's placing them in the United States and it's funding them by borrowing on the New York Stock Exchange on Wall Street or by selling treasury bills. So you can't just offend the United States. You have to balance these things. Uh, the government creates a contraband committee at the end of 1940 to jumble these competing interests. Um, and uh, at, in 1916, uh, in February, it appoints Lord Robert Cecil as the first minister of blockade. He's a junior foreign office minister, but he has that responsibility of recognising those tensions. So what you're doing is harnessing the neutrals to become part of the blockade. That's what they realise they have to do. They have to make them partners with Britain rather than partners with Germany, despite the good prices that Germany will pay for the goods they've got to offer. And it does this by a number of methods, the toughest of which tend to be pushed by the French, and we tend to forget the French contribution to the blockade uh, more than the British. Uh, what the French want to do, number one, is to say, we will ration, let's say, the Netherlands' imports uh, 
1915 to the levels that they were in 1913. That's obviously all they need in normal times. Why should they need more in war time? Um, and if they want to sell it on to Germany, that's their hard luck, but presumably they'll need to feed their own population first. So rationing is one idea. Uh, the other idea, which Britain falls in eventually to French pressure on both these things by 1916. The other idea that the French are very keen on is the idea of preclusive purchase. In order to stop Dutch, uh, Dutch dairy produce going to uh, Germany, we should buy it instead. We may buy more butter and more cheese than we need, but we stop it going to Germany. Uh, we should therefore do a deal in order to assure that. So those are the two mechanisms. The other two mechanisms which Britain pushes are first of all what are called naviserves. Um, these are essentially passports for goods. So having got the commercial intelligence to underpin this, you can then say, well, we know that this company operating out of New York is actually legit, that they're not trying to export to Germany, that they're genuinely sending these goods to Oslo for consumption in Oslo, um, and we will therefore issue with them, with them with a certificate to say that they are free to go, and we can issue that in New York from the moment of sailing, so the ship carrying those goods can deliver them uh, safely and directly. So there is no disruption to the line of trade. The one thing, I used to work in the shipping business, I say this with some feeling, the one thing the owners of liner companies hate is not being able to say, we're sailing from New York every Wednesday. Um, if you have ships that are disrupted en route, are taken in for examination to a British port and then released, your ships end up all over the world at the wrong time at the wrong place. You're not able to keep your line of trade going. You want the certainty of sailing, and Navisurps enable that to happen. And the other mechanism of control is the control of coal, the South Wales coal especially, of course, South Welsh coal especially, which is, gives you particularly good uh, speeds at sea, burns effectively. Um, Britain controls that, controls it globally through its network of global ports, and bunker control uh, means that you can say only those shipping companies in good standing with the United Kingdom will be allowed access to this. Um, the ideal model for this is the Netherlands Overseas Trust, um, which is the set up not with the Dutch government, Britain Foreign Office as soon as it's going to have to deal with governments. But of course, if it does that, it will Im impinge on the neutrality of those governments. So what it, uh, uh, with the danger, especially from the border neutrals, that they might themselves be invaded by Germany, as the Netherlands very nearly was. So what they do is do a deal with companies, and companies uh, agree, essentially, to make the trade work uh, in both Holland's and Britain's advantage. No deal works as well as, as the Netherlands Overseas Trust. Sweden, for example, is in a very strong position because Britain needs Sweden as a conduit to get goods to Russia, and Sweden is not under any maritime threat from Britain, and the population is more split and bent to Germany anyways. So that, that, you know, there are variations in this relationship. Uh, the blockade goes through three phases. The sort of setting up phase from 1914-15, the period of 1915-17 where Britain is juggling the pressures from the French especially, but also domestically from Parliament and from the press, the tighten the blockade, and the restraint provided particularly by the United States, the need not to pull out the United States. Uh, the, United States. the third phase is of course after the entry of the United States in April 1917. And this is when the blockade really does take effect. It does. It requires a long war for the blockade to work. Uh, with the declaration of unrestricted U-boat warfare, Germany shoots itself in the foot. Because the consequence of that is that the neutral countries feel that their tonnage is going to be sunk by German submarines, so the ships don't put to sea. So they import less, so there's less food to be exported to Germany. The United States his entry also means that convoys coming to Britain don't have to assemble in the Atlantic, but can now assemble in American ports before they sail. And the whole business of the regulation of trade can be done on the eastern American seaboard in secure positions without exposure to 
the to to the Germans. Um, and the result is that actually the Navy's action, and this is what I said where the Japanese doesn't change, it, you know, the, the Navy at that point is not winning the war itself single-handedly. The tenth cruiser squadron is actually ultimately dissolved in 1918. That actually the blockade is really being controlled from America in terms of who's allowed to sell, sail, when they're allowed to sail. In August 1917, Woodrow Wilson signs off an embargo, which effectively says no goods can be exported from the United States, whether they're of military value or their foods, stuffs, or any other commodity, without getting a license. And he says that no food will be exported to any German border, neutrally, neutral border in Germany, between now, August 1917, and December 1917, while we can assess the situation. What that means is that the trade to border neutral slumps. Many in the border neutral are actually going hungry uh, in the winter of 1917-18, just as much as they're going hungry in um, in uh, in Germany. Uh, and as a result, um, the blockade is able to take effect. Not least, of course, because what the United States is also able to do is to genu generate genuinely uh, effective allied coordination. An allied blockade committee, Britain is really losing control of the blockade by 1918. It's run by an allied committee um, in which Britain still has obviously a very powerful voice, but all its agencies now become entente agencies and are operating essentially under strong American pressure because of America's and the alliance's global purchasing power in terms of commodities like wheat and meat, but also in terms of control of shipping and so on. So the blockade is now really tight, and of course, crucially, will remain tight right up until the Peace of Versailles, until long after the armistice. Now, time to wrap up. Did the blockade win the war? Go back to that proposition. Um, it is important to remember um, that how we now judge the blockade tends to be through the prism of food, which is why I've got this war on food up there. You know, it is called the hunger blockade, starvation blockade, that is the assumption. You need to remember that that is not the biggest contribution of the blockade. The purpose of the blockade is to stop Germany importing the vital metals and other materials it needs, like cotton, for example, for the United States, to make explosive shells and so on. Um, the debate is on food because, of course, that's more emotive, because it concerns the neutrals, and because there's a conditionality about its definition of blockade. But if the focus is on food, then, of course, after the war, which is why little half the cell could be so gung ho, people can refer to the revolutions in Austria-Hungary and in Germany to show that those revolutions were driven by hunger, starvation, deprivation. That is why the populations of these countries, that it could, could turn on their governments. That is why there could be, in inverted commas, a stab in the back. The trouble with this, of course, is that the target here has become essentially the non-competent population. You know, is this a war crime? If, as the Germans claimed in the 1920s, one million Germans were killed as a result of the blockade through starvation, not actually necessarily true as that, but if that is the case, then this is more than British soldiers were killed fighting, or British Empire soldiers were killed fighting in the First World War. It's a significant claim, and international law had been trying to protect non-competence from the effects of war uh, before 1914. That was one of the primary purposes of the two a conventions. It is important to remember that if hunger is the cause of the collapse of the central powers, then there are other things in the blockade that are actually causing hunger. First of all, at mobilisation, as they've already indicated, peasants are taken off the land. Agricultural workers are taken away from the business of food production. Not only them, but draft animals are taken from the land. Um, and with them, of course, large stocks of manure also go from the land, and fertilizers, broadly speaking, depend on imports. Um, so productivity gets out of the land. 
transport and distribution networks collapse because you're using the railway system to keep the troops moving and to deploy them from front to front. And the railway system itself deteriorates over the course of the war because of this added pressure. So food, even if it's produced, isn't necessarily getting to the right markets. The ways in which land warfare is waged, particularly in its manoeuvre stages in 1914 especially, has a damaging effect on agricultural production. Scorched earth is used in Galicia in 1914 by both sides. It's used in the, by the Russians when they retreat in 1915. It's used in the withdrawal to the Hindenburg Line, Siegfried Stellen, in 1917. So Scorched is seen as a legitimate way of war and indeed the German guidance on supply before 1914 is very clear about this. Destroy food if you can't use it yourself because otherwise it will be used by the enemy. To deny it to the enemy uh, is paramount and you mustn't pay any attention to the needs of the civilian population. It's very clear on that point. Uh, don't allow you false humanitarianism uh, to lead you into being with uh, feeding the feeding the, uh, the enemy indirectly, and then there is the government response to these food shortages. If the government gets the response wrong, and broadly speaking, the food supply policies of Germany and of Austria-Hungary and of the Ottoman Empire and of Bulgaria are extraordinarily ill-conceived Ill and bad managed, badly managed, then you will exacerbate the effects of blockade. In other words, blockade isn't operating on its own. It depends how Germany decides to distribute the food that it has. And what actually happens in these societies is shortages are so badly managed they generate internal division. Um, so the countryside is accused of hoarding, not letting food come to the towns. The towns, uh, therefore, take it again the countryside. The countryside feel that there are war profiteers cashing in on the crops that they're producing. The black market creates a sense that the rich can always get food and the poor can't. Um, there are big regional divisions. And of course, who actually always gets fed? The answer is the soldiers get fed, number one, tend to be better fed, and those in heavy industry, number two, in terms of official rationing. So what you'll not actually do is undermining the performance in the battlefield of what you're doing. And the British official historian of the blockade, A.C. Bell, made this point. I won't get the quotation exactly right. It's a marvelously rhetorical passage at the end. He said, if all we're doing by this is essentially uh, causing pregnant women to give birth to children prematurely, we're killing those who are already suffering from various forms of illness and incapacity to die prematurely. Um, we are targeting uh, the old and the very young. Then was it really worth the effort? He raises that question. His answer, of course, is it was, because he sees the effect as being the effect on morale. And finally, of course, in assessing the effects of blockade, you have to remember the role of nature in producing food. The harvest of 1916 is a disaster right across Europe, not just in Russia. The Russian Revolution of March 1917 is prompted by a bad harvest in 1916, but it's the turnip winter 1916-17 in Germany. It's a bad harvest everywhere. And that is an act of God, not an act by the belligerent power. 1917, there is starvation again in Palestine and Syria because there are not, there's not one plague of locusts that year, but two plagues of locusts. Um, with the result that Lawrence describes in 1918 when they go into Damascus, just how hungry uh, the Turkish troops are. So there are many other factors that contribute to the issue of starvation. Um, and the way in which uh, it plays out. What I would say, in conclusion, is two things. One is, this is an alliance conflict. When the war ends, each of the members of the Quadruple Alliance, the Central Powers, makes its own independent decision to seek a peace settlement. Each country, in other words, has this problem and it plays out in different ways. And what is striking in the focus on this argument is just as it tends to look to food rather than other things, so also it looks to Germany and neglects the impacts of the blockade on Bulgaria, the Ottoman Empire, and Austria-Hungary. The blockade is far tighter in the Mediterranean than it ever is in the North Sea because there are no border neutrals. After Italy enters the war in 1915, 
and Greece is forced into war in 1917, these are essentially landlocked countries. Uh, Turkey has no internal system of railway communication that functions uh, with all the gaps in the railway network. Most of its trade, its, most of its domestic movement of goods before 1914 goes by sea and it can't move. Um, so there is a coalition aspect to this that we tend to neglect. And what I would also say is that that polarity that opened up with the little heart argument that sea power won the war, or that it didn't win the war, but military operations did, neglects, of course, the interaction between these two elements. These, this is, by 1918, what we would later call a total war, where armies are dependent on their parent societies, and parent societies often reflect the view of their armies. Uh, they don't stand in independence. German soldiers at the front or Austrian soldiers at the front, know those at home are starving. Why should they be fighting for this regime when their own families are losing? Why should they carry on the war when actually there is going to be no recognizable home to return to? So these things don't stand in isolation. They are part and parcel of each other. They're round up together. It's a false polarity. After the armistice, of course, military operations stop. But what nobody is sure of at that juncture is whether the war has delivered a final peace settlement. Because armistices are temporary wars, not a definitive peace. And the blockade is continued. And the blockade is continued with a firmness and tightness that it has never previously achieved, because now the Baltic is also closed up. So the Scandinavian states are kind of cut off from Germany. The German protests, of course, are strong and vociferous, and the Americans begin to weaken, uh, and there is a concern that all you're doing, going to do is prompt further revolution and give support to Bolshevism. But the striking thing there is that much of the reputation of the blockade and its effectiveness comes from that six, seven months, eight months between November 1918 and July 1919. Thank you very much. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>